Welcome, everybody. This is the Contemplating Christian, and today we are talking about the Lord's Supper, or the Eucharist, or the Mass, or, yeah, those are the different names for it usually. And we are going to, depending on the Christian tradition you're coming from, uh, different ways of describing the Lord's table. And so we're going to be talking about that today and just kind of chatting about our thoughts on it, our positions, how we've uh, kind of grown in that area and changed and morphed and how we're continuing to develop our thoughts on uh, this important ordinance or sacrament of the church. And so mm -hmm. this may be one of multiple sort of Eucharistic dialogues that we're going to have. So first, we're just going to kind of chat about kind of where we've gone, our journey through this. For some context, I've kind of grown up in a uh, non-denominational evangelical church context, uh, seeing the Lord's Supper as basically as low church as you could view it. So it is a uh, memorial. It is a, uh, if, if you're familiar with what a memorialist view is, it just uh, sees the Lord's Supper as simply remembering the death of Christ. Um, and it would call it an ordinance of the church and usually uh, does not celebrate it weekly. Um, so that's kind of the context that I've grown up in. Samuel, do you want to talk about maybe your background of this mm -hmm. uh, and your thoughts on it? Yeah. Yeah. Uh, so I grew up Pentecostal and Messianic Jewish. So uh, that, that was my background. I honestly don't remember taking a ton of the Lord's Supper or or anything like that, especially as a Messianic Jew. So as a Pentecostal, we would obviously have times that we did it. But when I became Messianic Jewish, we would focus a lot on Jewish traditions and stuff like the Passover. And so <clears throat> obviously there would be times when we ate bread or drank wine or something like that. But it wasn't uh, like a weekly sacrament that we did as part of our service. Um, mm. there, there was nothing like that. and so. For, I would say for a while, I just didn't do it. <clears throat> Sorry. And then after that, I kind of didn't care about it. And then <clears throat> when I went to a Baptist denomination, uh, I started doing it more and didn't really realize the uh, significance of it. And so I did a memorialist view, kind of like what you were talking about. But it's been really over the past about year, year and a half, where I started to develop my view on it of the real presence of Jesus Christ and the actual benefits of doing it weekly. And in fact, I've, I like that has been one of the reasons I've changed churches before. Mm. So uh, it's because a previous church that I was at wasn't doing it very frequently and uh, as i thought it more important i was like i need to be at a church that does it frequently yeah yeah so both of it just for yeah a bit more background then i guess both me and sam are kind of in a kind of a theological journey and a lot of what we want to do in this channel is just kind of chat about that journey as we both kind of walk through that uh as we walk through kind of refining our thoughts on theology and church history and all these different things. And uh, knowing that mm -hmm. we don't know everything. And there are a bunch of Christians who think that 
we're wrong about everything <laughs> or about different things. And so, yeah, lots of different Christians fight about different things. And we uh, have gone through periods of maybe some anxiety about, are we in the right church? That sort of a thing. Mm -hmm. And yeah, we're just always wanting to grow. And we, we personally think that chatting together helps kind of refine our thoughts. So yeah. that's kind of what we're doing with particularly the sacraments, the Lord's supper baptism. Uh, and so that's what we want to do here. Um, so I was thinking, actually, I want to read, uh, first Corinthians 11. Um, where does it say here? Which is a chief text on the Lord's supper where Paul talks about how people are in the Corinthian church are taking or participating in the Lord's supper unworthily. And some are even dying. Some are being like falling sick. And then some are even dying because of their unworthy reception of the Lord's supper. That in of itself is somewhat jarring, I think, to maybe the modern evangelical. They would think like, why would that take place? That's kind of odd. Uh, mm -hmm. It at least should make it more serious in our own minds. Um, when we think about the Lord's Supper, the severity of it and the seriousness of it, the weight of it should be heightened when we read a passage like that. And if it is something that's jarring to us, then perhaps our doctrine of it is a bit malnourished perhaps if that is so jarring to us to hear that. Um, but in that same passage, I kind of want to use this as a jumping off point for the rest of our discussion. Paul talks about the Eucharist. He says it is a participation in the body and blood of Christ. That's the phraseology he uses in first Corinthians 11. He calls the Lord's supper or the Eucharist, a participation in the body and blood of Christ. And the Greek word is koinonia, which means close and intimate participation. So that of itself, that, uh, that word and that phraseology that the new Testament uses to describe it should make us kind of think and ponder and think, do I think about the Lord's supper that way? Does my church view the Lord's supper that way? This is uh, Charles Spurgeon quoting him here. He says, I thank God that coming to this table every Sabbath day, and this is a Baptist, uh, I thank God coming to this table every Sabbath day, as some of us do and have done for years, we have yet for the most part enjoyed the nearest communion with Christ here that we have ever known. So he calls the Lord's Supper the closest communion that you can have on this earth, which is pretty, pretty, that's pretty high exalted language to talk about it. Um, what are your thoughts on that, Samuel? Yeah, um, I would say clearly it's it's important. And classically, it's been known to bring unity with Christ. So the, the Eucharist does have many benefits. And uh, one of those benefits is actually being united with Christ. Um, many people wouldn't think of it like that. So uh, today we kind of have a casual view of the Eucharist or the Lord's Supper. So people <clears throat> will either never take it pretty much, or will think nothing happens when you take it, or even people will just um, take it by themselves, uh, which is uh, a controversial thing right now. A lot of people are saying that uh, everyone is a priest and so everyone can take it and there there is the argument but the point is that there there should be a reverence there should be uh a time when we're all together taking it the point is for it to unify the body of christ together mm -hmm. with christ 
Uh, so it shouldn't be an individual thing. It shouldn't be uh, a casual thing. It's uh, something that should be revered, like you were talking about people. Uh, Paul was talking about how people who took it unworthily just were getting sick, right? Yeah. Or it was damaging them instead of helping them, you right. know? And I think that this is something that wherever you're coming from, from Christianity, you could probably agree that even within your own circles, the, the Eucharist probably isn't viewed rightly. So like we were just talking before this about how um, there's polls about the number of Catholics who actually believe in transubstantiation or the real presence versus those who don't. So the amount of Catholics that actually like more Catholics don't believe in what the Catholic Church teaches about the Eucharist than Catholics that do. At least that's what that that poll said that you referenced from Bishop Aaron. Mm -hmm. um, that's kind of a tragic thing if you're a Catholic to, to think about. There's obviously some renewal and revival that needs to take place among Catholics about what they actually believe about it. Uh, and likewise, I would say that in like reform circles, um, which is kind of where we're coming from a little bit more, uh, there are many who who want to call Christians back to a more rich understanding of the Lord's Supper and taking it more seriously and seeing it as sort of um, like the central kind of retaining the centrality of it or seeing it as the central worship act of the Christian service that kind of like the, the worship service kind of culminates in a celebration of the Lord's Supper. Mm -hmm. And yeah, I think that that's, that's how we should look at it, how we should look at it actually. Um, yeah. Mm -hmm. thoughts um <clears throat> so i think i think we should talk a little bit more about the uh the importance of unity it brings and um how it should be delivered right um because we we did mention a little bit about that but really quick before uh it is it is tragic that a lot of people don't believe we do need revival on this we do need people to start believing in the actual Eucharist. I mean, if you go to the oldest church writings, they they hold that the the Eucharist and the Lord's Supper is central to kind of who they are. Uh they like so I, I think some people have put it that like Christians are people who partake in the Eucharist. That's how some people have described Christians. Mm -hmm. So that that's to tell you something. So if you're a Christian not partaking in the Eucharist, the Lord's Supper, uh, like those those the, those people who wrote those old Christian writings, if they looked at you today, they would say you're not a Christian if you weren't partaking in this, if you weren't part of a community that was partaking in the Lord's Supper. Like if you were just a right. group of people that came together and um, obviously like talked about God and maybe even worshiped God a, li a little bit, but then just like gave up the Eucharist, didn't think about it, didn't talk about it and didn't practice it in any way. They would be like, are you guys really practicing Christianity? Right. Right. <clears throat> yeah. So this is, uh, I'm getting this from a, uh, a lecture from a guy named John Payne and he has a book about John Owen's view, the great Puritan writer, maybe mm -hmm. the best Puritan theologian ever and his thoughts on the Lord's Supper. And he had a very, very rich understanding of it. And he says that the Lord's Supper is central to the church's identity. 
and to the believer's piety. So central to the church's identity and central in the believer's piety. So in your Christian walk, John Owen believed that the Lord's Supper should be central in your own personal piety and devotion to God and your own walk of discipleship. It should be central and also to the church's identity and to the church's proclamation. It is central just as the gospel is central mm-hmm. and the word proclaimed, the word preached. Likewise, the Eucharist, Paul says that it proclaims the Lord's death. As often as you take of it, you proclaim the Lord's death, that this is also central as much as the word is that these mm-hmm. act together the church acts together in word and sacrament to proclaim what Jesus has done and proclaiming the gospel. Mm-hmm. And I just think that there's a lot of churches that that's not the case. Um, mm-hmm. It's kind of seen as an afterthought. Uh, yeah. So yeah, I think and, John Owen uh, can help us here a little bit. Yeah. And there's also, there's also meaning behind how we do it too. So <clears throat> for example, uh, like I said, some people are arguing today that like we can just do it ourselves um the problem with that isn't that like you're you're incapable of performing uh some type of prayer or scripture reading to like prepare the bread or something like that it is that it doesn't model the christian way of life as in you're serving yourself right there uh in in a church service when when we pass out the body and blood of jesus christ people are giving it to you they are serving it to you that's to that's to remind us that we cannot feed ourselves. We mm-hmm. cannot serve ourselves. All right. We have to serve others, but also mm-hmm. um, God is the one that has to help us. All right. Uh, so it, mm-hmm. like that in itself is just uh, kind of anti-Pelagian right there. Right. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's saying we can't help ourselves. And when we, when we're doing it by ourselves, we, we are, we're doing it all. And then we, serve ourselves right there um right so it doesn't it doesn't reflect how we're supposed to follow christianity right right and no i and like i brought up a a pelagianism there and it there's a pelagianism that creeps in in another way with the sacraments if you have a like a purely memorialist view like a good question to ask i've heard uh in that dialogue with uh, Gavin and Brett, the Catholic guy, mm-hmm. he talks about um, who is the primary actor in the Eucharist or in baptism. And if you come from a sacramentalist tradition, they'll say that the primary actor is God. So God is actually doing something when this takes place. When the church partakes of the Lord's Supper, God is actually at work. His, his spirit is applying the benefits of Christ's death afresh to the believers, the faithful, um, God's actually at work, but in a memorialist understanding, the primary actor is not God. It's you. You are the one who's remembering whatever. The only thing that's, um, making anything take place is the believer's subjective remembrance of Christ. And so there's a Pelagianism in a sense there too, of if the only thing that makes something effective is your own kind of conscious thought of it then it's kind of you are the primary actor in a sense i think that's an interesting way to think about that Hmm. yeah yeah that is um because god is the primary actor in this and Mm -hmm. i think uh uh like when when we were prepping for this uh will you brought up something with like how, how it's done or how it's received on 
on our part. I think we should, I should talk a little bit about that. I know you have some quotes on it, but um, so for example, if God is the primary actor, how is it that we, we receive it then? Um, Cause there's debate among Christian traditions about that. So like some people say the soul is, is what receives it uh, and receives Christ's presence. Some people say that Christ is actually what's called locally or carnally present in there. And so it's received in the soul and actually also uh, through just the mouth and the throat. Uh, mm-hmm. And so what, uh, what are all the moving parts of the Lord's Supper? Uh, can you read some, some quotes and ideas from that? Absolutely. Well, once again, this is going to be something that Christians differ a lot on and the way that this takes place, uh, the mechanics of how all of this happens. But to show my cards a little bit, I, I personally am kind of at the moment convinced uh, of more of a Calvinistic or reform view of the Lord's Supper. Uh, and I think that that makes the most sense. Um, but this is from Calvin. So John Calvin, and he talks about kind of how this, how this reception of the Lord's Supper takes place. He emphasizes it's a, it's a spiritual eating or a spiritual feasting. It's not so much a physical eating of Christ, uh, but it is a spiritual eating. So our, our souls, uh, partake. And our souls are the principal organ of reception, is how he would describe it. And Calvin says, Christ feeds our souls just as bread and wine support our bodily life. There would be no point in the signs if our souls did not find their nourishment in Christ. Although it seems an incredible thing, we have to remember the immense power of the Holy Spirit and how stupid it is to try to measure its immensity by our feeble efforts. The Spirit really does unite things separated by space. So this is from the Institutes, and I could cite it, but there's no point. (laughs) But that's from Calvin's Institutes, and he's saying how um, just as we are fed bodily by the bread and the wine and we're nourished in that way, our souls at the same time are are nourished by the body and blood of Christ. And so in the Mm -hmm. Reform view, you have the bread and the wine remain, but then they're also mystically united to the actual body and blood of Christ. And maybe the most succinct way to put the reforms, the reform view of spiritual presence is that the body and blood of Christ are truly and substantially present, but not locally and carnally present, which is a quote from Martin Bootser. Mm-hmm. So that's kind of a reform take on things and how that works and how the mechanics of that work. That's going to differ in the Catholic view and in the Lutheran view as well. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah. Yeah. And we could do way of analogy uh, for understanding the benefits with just normal food as well. So let's say that it actually does nourish our soul and our soul receives it and Jesus is present. And um, obviously we should be doing that consistently with the body of Christ. And like I said, people take it together so they become unified, which would also be stronger. So by way of analogy, what if we said that, let's just say we didn't eat what would happen? We would obviously grow weak and tired and our physical yeah. capabilities would be um, below average, definitely, maybe even to the point where we couldn't really do anything. Um, we we wouldn't be able to accomplish anything and pretty much like anyone could take advantage of us uh, when it would come to that stuff. So we could think of that spiritually as well because um, mm-hmm. I think Martin like a Martin Luther and, a, and probably a lot of other people wrote about this, but 
when we take the Lord's Supper um, together and it nourishes us, it actually strengthens our soul, strengthens our faith, gives us, it's a way or means of grace so we can persevere and keep going. Um, mm-hmm. If we aren't taking this, we are starving our soul. That's kind of yeah. uh, what it means. And so that's uh, like that's why we need to take it so our soul isn't starved. Right. Yeah, I, I think to, a good way to think about it is having actually like two types of graces that we talk about. So I think that there is a, this is again coming from a Protestant perspective, but like having, we have grace, like justifying grace and justification that happens where a, a believer is is transferred, their status is changed from an enemy of God to a friend of God. And that becomes a, a status that won't change, at least from a reform perspective. Um, but then you have sanctifying grace, which is a real category that reformed Christians believe in. That's not just a Catholic thing. There, there's sanctifying grace that strengthens the believer throughout their whole life. And maybe for biblical support of this, think of like, uh, I think second Peter three, 18 talks about how we grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. So there's a, there's a biblical category for growing in grace. Um, and I think that that's a good way to understand that is sanctifying grace that we are not being, we're, we're, um, we like, we're not like, we're not saved. And then we take of the Lord's supper and then we become saved again. That's not the understanding of it. It's that we are being strengthened in our faith and nourished, just like you'd say for prayer or Bible reading. It's like asking, do I need to pray to be a Christian? And we'll say, yes, you need to pray to be a Christian. And then somebody responding, am I working my, for my salvation? Then it's no, you are growing in your walk. Um, so likewise, I put the Lord's supper in that category. And I think that that's right. It's mm-hmm. a means that we grow and it provides true sanctifying grace in the same way that prayer and Bible reading and communion with other Christians does the same thing. But yeah. I think that the, the Lord's supper should be seen as like the chief among those is like um, very much central in the believer's life. Yeah. So it should be a discipline and mm-hmm. I mean, it, it obviously does something. Um, I'm not sure about the Catholic belief on what it exactly does or, um, or if it does work with uh, justification somehow, but uh, mm-hmm. obviously it, it wouldn't be initial justification. I, I, I think Catholics have initial justification and continual justification. Um, mm-hmm. I don't, I'm not sure if they technically have a, um, category for what Protestants would think of as sanctification. Catholics would definitely articulate much different, but they would also believe in the transubstantial view that uh, when you partake of it, it is it is essential. And, and uh, Catholics and Orthodox specifically highly exalt the, uh, the Eucharist. That's what the whole service is pretty much about and they've and they've kept it actually um there's there's a video by bishop robert Barron on this and so the the poll that we mentioned earlier of 70 percent of christian uh catholics don't believe in the real presence when he was talking about the eucharist he actually said that there has been like out of all the commandments there has been one commandment that has been followed 
pretty much by every generation of Christians. And this, like right now, this may be like the first time we're seeing it not being followed. And that's mm. the Eucharist um, when he says, yeah. um, when, when he tells us to partake of the body and blood. And he mm-hmm. institutes that practice every single generation of Christians up until right now has practiced it. We could even say weekly or even more than weekly. Um, yeah. And consistently. Yeah. And with the, with the other commands, uh, Bishop Robert Barron said that people have broken them. So there've been times where obviously there were, there were horrible sins being committed in the church throughout history. <laughs> but the one command that was not being broken was the Eucharist. Hmm. Yeah. I, yeah. It's, I think it, it's part of the church's identity. It's central to the church's identity. You don't have a, a true church if you aren't actually practicing baptism and the Lord's Supper, the things that Christ ordered us to do. Um, hmm. But kind of an ironic point is that typically today we'd, we'd see uh, like the Catholics and Orthodox as having the higher view of the Lord's Supper. Mm-hmm. Ironically, though, like perhaps you could maybe call the first thing that kind of kicked off. One of the first things that kicked off the Reformation was like lay people who were being in their minds starved of the Lord's Supper and mm-hmm. sort of protesting against the Roman Catholic Church who would only give that like once a year uh, and they would only mm-hmm. give it in one kind. So they would only give um, the bread. They wouldn't give the wine. Mm-hmm. And so back in the Reformation period, there were Christians that only partook of it once a year and it would be in one kind. And uh, like Jan Hus and the Hussites, uh, one of their big points was that you need to be partaking in both kinds there needs to be both the bread and the wine and it needs to be more frequent for the laity. They're being starved of it. And I think part of what was taking part of what was going on was that the, um, the theology surrounding or the, the, the practices surrounding the Eucharist took on such a aura that there was almost a superstition of like, if the lady dropped the wine, then you'd be dropping Christ on the ground and you'd have to pick it all up and, or what, you know, stuff like that. There were sort of superstitious practices that arose, but what this actually ended up taking place was that people were not getting it at all. And so ironically now Protestants are now seen as kind of less serious on sacraments and now Catholics take it like every day, like serious Catholics go to like daily mass. Whereas in the reformation period, like once a year. Yeah. So it's, it's interesting how the church's practices has changed over the years so much, but yeah. And also in the reformation, that's what split up reformers. Yeah. Uh, Cause reformers after they split from the Catholic church, were able to agree on everything except for uh, baptism and the Lord's supper though. That's what yeah. split people that we could say. That's the first split of like denominations um, and creation of different denominations, because obviously yeah, then- Luther yeah, Luther believed in baptismal uh, and infant, uh, sorry, baptismal regeneration and infant baptism. Calvin, um, obviously, uh, was like he was a what we may call like a Presbyterian. Uh, <clears throat> I think Zwingli believed in some sort of spiritual presence in the the Eucharist. Luther believed in some. I think Luther would probably he would hold to some type of local. Uh, presence right would he he well 
we'll, we'll show our cards that we we yeah. don't know all the things that we're talking about and we're just growing yeah. and all this, both of us but uh i think he would be more comfortable saying that yeah. um it's sort of a sort of a mix mystery. between well certainly mystery but that they would say that um christ is just truly present in the elements and that we mm. really do feast upon him yeah. and i don't know exact it's I feel like every time I think and talk about what Lutherans believe, I don't get it right. <laughs> and it ends up being wrong somehow. So no matter what you say about them, it often ends up being wrong. But they leave a lot of room for mystery. Yeah. I think the best way to articulate what they believe is that uh, when Christ says, this is my body, he's not lying. Yeah. If you were to try to defend the Lutheran view, that's what they would say, is that when he's saying that, that's true, that this is his body. And so when you partake of the elements, you're, this is this is the body of Christ. This is the blood of yeah. Christ, and just leave it at that, and try yeah. not to articulate it further. Yeah. Um, but the point of that, that, sorry, go ahead. Yeah, I, I was going to say the point of that whole whole thing though was that it was important enough that this is like what everyone started breaking up over was right. the Eucharist and the uh, and baptism. Right. I know it's a, it's it's sort of tragic. The mm -hmm. Eucharist is supposed to be the unifying thing for Christians. It is supposed to be the meal that unites Christians together. And that hasn't taken place very much, at least yeah. not to the extent that it should and could be like, it is supposed to be the thing that unites us as Christians and believers. And it has been the thing that has caused perhaps the most division among Christians has been the Lord's supper and our understanding of baptism as well. So it is sad. And we do long for the day when all Christians could Maybe maybe post millennialism is true, and in like fifty thousand years, the the church will be one in some way, and we'll all partake yeah. of the Lord's Supper perfectly, and we'll all agree about what it is. And but yeah. it's in the Lord's hands, and whether that will take place or not. Mm -hmm. Yeah. All right. What uh, what's next on the list for talking about the 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 Lord's Supper? I know you got quotes just piled up. <laughs> yeah, I like this quote a lot. This is uh from that same view talking about what John Owen thought about it. And the Puritans had this idea of uh, the believer's union with Christ and his communion with Christ. So union and communion, those are kind of two categories to think about a believer's walk. Uh, your union with Christ is this unchangeable status that you get, that God, God unites you to Christ through the power of the Holy Spirit, and you get all the benefits of salvation from your union with Christ. Everything else flows from it. But then your communion is your subjective experience of your walk with God. So it is uh, sort of your daily uh, walk with him and what's your communion with God in prayer and his word and the means of grace. Mm -hmm. And so seeing the Lord's Supper as an assurance of our union with Christ, an assurance to the soul of our union with Christ and a strengthening of our communion with Christ. Mm -hmm. I think that's a great way to look at the Lord's Supper. And if yeah. that's true, then why would we not want to not want to partake of it as often as we can? Yeah. And here's here's an idea. It is uh, something tangible and mm -hmm. somewhat ob objective for us to uh, hold on to, because yeah. um, obviously in our walk we could feel unforgiven or feel horrible or feel like we aren't unified with Christ, right? Yeah. And we but we can know we have faith. But then when we take the Eucharist, that's something tangible uh within this 
uh, realm that we can actually look at, see, experience, uh, sense uh, with our physical and spiritual selves that mm-hmm. uh, that will reassure us. So there is that assurance there. So when someone actually takes that and yeah. uh, is in remembrance of what Christ did, yeah, that actually is very helpful. That is very helpful. For, so if if someone is like struggling, like, oh crap, I just like uh uh like I'm I don't know, I'm addicted to alcohol or something like that, and I'm really trying to quit and um mm-hmm. I'm I'm having a, a hard time and they, they just feel like they, they just keep failing and they're like, How how could God save uh someone like me or how could I actually be justified right now? I'm probably going to hell. Um yeah. if they showed up to church, they could boom, uh they could experience mm-hmm. that with the community of believers and get that assurance. Yeah. And this is where um, I think all Christians should agree that the Lord's Supper is meant to be an assurance of God's love to us. Mm -hmm. That's supposed to strengthen us in our faith. Everybody agrees with that. Uh, Interestingly, though, this is kind of where I am like currently wrestling in my own thoughts. And again, this is just a this is just two guys rambling about (laughs) about the Lord's Supper yeah. and our own thoughts on it. Barking. <laughs> uh, yes. <laughs> uh, but my own thoughts, like right now, I'm kind of struggling with, because I kind of come from a, the Reformed perspective on this and a Calvinistic view, but their view of the atonement, if you believe in limited atonement, affects this quite a bit, actually. Uh, your view of whether Christ has died for all or only for the elect actually affects your doctrine of the sacraments. Because if you believe in limited atonement, that means like that the sacraments are only efficacious for the elect. So there isn't a, if you're somebody, so f- for some people, the doctrine of limited atonement and the perseverance of the saints helps them in their assurance. And for some people, it completely destroys their assurance. Mm-hmm. And this is just a, this is a reality. Everybody in different Christian traditions struggles with assurance. That's always a pastoral concern. Uh, whether you're a Catholic or a Lutheran or Reformed, there's always going to be people that struggle with assurance. And there are unique elements, whether you believe in unlimited atonement or limited atonement, whether you can lose your salvation or whether you can't, that all of those doctrines affect people differently. And it's just true that there are Christians that the the doctrine of limited atonement either makes them more comfortable in their salvation or less comfortable gives them a healthy assurance or an unhealthy assurance it it just there's a mix and so it's not we can't just say that because it has this practical outgrowth that it's wrong or right it's just something to keep in mind and so if you believe in limited atonement that means that if you're struggling and going i wonder if i'm elect and i don't know how i am elect i'm not sure if i am then the sacrament actually might not be as much of a comfort to you and there are people that struggle with that on the flip side there are some people that that doctrine of predestination and election and limited atonement as articulated by Calvinism is a huge comfort to them. And so they are assured, like, I know I'm elect and this is of great comfort to me. That's something I'm currently struggling with, though, where like Lutherans, they don't have as much. They, they believe Christ died for all. They believe in unlimited atonement. And so mm-hmm. they believe that when you're coming to the table, no matter who you are, you can be absolutely 100 percent positive. Sure that Christ has died for you and it's right there, like right in front of you at at the Lord's Mm -hmm. table. And if you're a Calvinist, you have to say, it's only if 
it's only effective if you're part of the elect. So I'm kind of currently, that's just a, yeah. a current wrestle that I'm having of, uh, if it's your doctrine of atonement affects this too. And they're all kind of linked together, which is interesting. Yeah. Didn't you say that Calvin had a quote of like, like someone who's not elect, it's like a cork in a bottle or something like that. Oh like, yeah. That's from, yeah. That's from basically everything I say is regurgitating something Gavin Ortland has said, but uh, he, he's talked about uh, in his, his debate with this Catholic guy, he talked about um, how the presence of Christ to the elect or the non-elect person is like the presence of Christ in the supper is still objective. It's objectively there, but it's like a corked bottle where they they do not partake of it because they're not partaking of it in faith. And so it's objectively still present, but you're not receiving it because you're not taking it in faith. Yeah, there has to be some subjective aspect of it mm -hmm. um, where the person actually, yeah, I can actually see how that would affect, uh, like limited atonement would affect I never actually thought about that before. That's interesting. Um, yeah. But yeah, if someone actually doesn't believe, it's not like they're going to suddenly eat bread that has been blessed or something like that. And then they'll intake Christ and they'll be like, whoa, it just made me grow spiritually or something like that. Uh, yeah. That's not something that would happen. Um, right. Yeah. Because I, I remember plenty of times when I didn't care about the Eucharist, uh, I, I like a corked bottle would be a good um, illustration for how it yeah. felt. So like when I was a kid, I didn't care about it. So, you know, I was, uh, so I obviously took it and there might've been something objective there, mm -hmm. but you know, didn't really do anything for me spiritually or like subjectively in my experience. Um, yeah. Yeah. Right. And um, so, uh, th these things, these doctrines and our theology kind of all connects in ways that we don't often anticipate, mm -hmm. um, which is interesting. Yeah. Other thoughts you got right now, Samuel? Yeah, my 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 struggles. Now I want to talk about my struggles because you talked about yours. <laughs> yeah, I feel yeah. left out. Um, okay, so right now, what what I'm struggling with is actually more the the Catholic stuff. So right now I'm kind of taking a journey through the entire catechism and reading that and um trying to Some figure easy, out easy pleasure reading easy pleasure reading it's actually going quite quickly i will say that because i i'm enjoying it if if you enjoy a book it goes so much faster but um anyway uh <clears throat> yeah i'm figuring that out because i'm definitely solidified on the real presence and um the the mode by which it has to be given so has to be given to you by someone you can't just serve yourself now i'm just trying to figure out the metaphysics behind it um and so i mean because there's so many different terms and it's like okay christ can be spiritually present carnally present locally present but also like in, in the cast sacramentally sacram present presence. Like, okay, you know what does that mean yeah like the substance yeah. or essence of uh, something can uh, can ch uh, can change, but the accidents stay the same. And uh, I mean, there's all these terms that we can throw out, and I'm trying to um, figure it out. And actually, there's there's 
so Will Will sent me a document to to prepare for this to kind of read. And apparently, Orthodox have like what's trans elementation? Is that what it's called? Yeah, Tr- trans elementation, um, which is just like another view of how it it changes. And so I'm not exactly sure how exactly. <laughs> It changes. And if if Christ is actually like locally and carnally present, does that actually do something? You know? Yeah. Yeah. There's a lot of I, I I personally think that there's a lot of unnecessary disagreement among denominations about the Lord's Supper. And that when mm-hmm. you get down to the nitty gritty of each group, like what Lutherans really think and what Reformed really think and what Catholics really think, I think they're often trying to say the same things. And they have kind of silly disagreements because the, the like the worst caricatures of each of those groups aren't actually true often. And so mm-hmm. there's I think there's more common ground to be found currently in Eucharistic theology than we currently have. Um, so I think that's something we should strive for as as pastors and theologians and Christians is thinking about this and how can we build bridges between different groups on this issue because I do you think there's a lot of unnecessary disagreement? Yeah, there is. But it's a complicated thing and we'll work through it for a long time and we'll still have a lot of questions and yeah. Yeah. But we're just seeking to honor Christ in what we do. And we want to, we want to have the fullness of whatever he wants for us by this mm-hmm. meal that he instituted in the new covenant. Of course, it's the kind of the new covenant version of the Passover mm-hmm. and he's our Passover lamb. And, there's all this beautiful imagery there and we want to have the fullness of whatever that is. And so, um, yeah, we're trying to, to figure that all out, but this is sort of a, sort of a flashpoint, maybe in like two years, we'll look back on this video and, and we'll have completely like, different wow, views on this. We were stupid, you know, <laughs> we were so dumb. That'll probably happen a lot. <laughs> stupid. Um, yeah. Okay. But that, that's kind of what I'm struggling with right now. Uh, do you have, yeah. do you have anything else that, uh, we could bring up because I mean, we, we kind of talked about a lot of stuff just in general and future dialogues. We might be able to dive into one specific idea, but you got anything else? No, I think just the last, last thing I'll say is that we should, I think as a church strive to take the Eucharist more seriously, the Lord's supper. Mm -hmm. Um, we should seek to see our joyful participation in the Lord's Supper as a proclamation to the world of how the church is unique, how the church is set apart and different and how it proclaims Christ. As often as you partake of this, you proclaim the Lord's death. And so as essential as the the gospel being preached faithfully is to the church, I think that the right administration of the sacraments should be seen as as central and essential for the church. And so, and, and what, and it's what makes the church a different community. Yeah. And so, I think we should try to recover more of that, no matter where we're coming from. Yeah. That's kind of all I have to say. Same here. Same here. That's all, all right. I got. So this has been a ramble, rambling discussion on the Lord's Supper. And I'm sure there'll be more as we continue to think about this. Uh, but yeah. feel free if you've enjoyed this and if you've if this has provoked any thought for you or any questions, feel free to drop them below and get interact as well. But this has been the Contemplating Christian. Feel free to look in the description for ways to support us. And uh, all glory to God. God bless. Yeah, God bless.